Please keep your Bibles open to, to Matthew chapter 19. It's great you're working through a gospel. And uh, one of the things about taking that approach as a church is that you end up speaking on all sorts of things you might never speak on otherwise. Um, and some are, some are difficult and some are um, surprising and some are lovely and comforting and all those sorts of things and um, get to experience the richness of God's word. Um, and uh, th- this is a great one, isn't it? As we come to think about the, the paradox, oh, you, you've probably um, been feeling the paradox of the values of the kingdom of, of God, as he's been talking about um, well, last week, marriage uh, and, uh, and today, money and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so um, I'm going to pray now and just ask for, for God's help because as, as uh, we come to think about his kingdom and what it means to belong to his kingdom, um, we really need his help. We need him to do something that we can't do ourselves. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, thank you for this church here. Thank you for everyone here today. Um, Lord, I pray, please, that you would bless our time together now around your word. Uh, would, you, would you do more than we could ask or think? Uh, please, Lord God, do the impossible thing that we cannot do as humans. And so, Lord, uh, free us, Lord, from the love of money and help us, Lord, to be able to store up treasure in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know the story of... Um, the businessman, the wealthy businessman, uh, who every year would give away something of great value. Uh, so one year it was his yacht, uh, another year his um, you know, private mansion and, and so on, his holiday home, another year, uh, and on it went. And uh, people began to be a little bit curious. He wasn't a Christian guy. Uh, people began to wonder why he was doing this. Uh, until someone, I guess, eventually uh, approached him and asked him why. And he came back with, I think, quite a, a short but um, a helpful saying. He said, if I can give it away, I own it. If I cannot give it away, it owns me. And that was uh, his understanding of, um, of how he dealt with his wealth, Well, today I want us to look at another story. It's this story that was read for us uh, of a man who couldn't do that. Um, We were never given his name in any of the Gospels. Um, We're literally introduced to him as a a man. But we are given his income. (laughs) Not given his name, but we are told that he had great possessions, verse 22. He had great wealth. Uh, We're not told his name, but we are told his age. Uh, Twice in this account, verse 20 and verse 22, Matthew tells us that he was young. So he was young and he was wealthy. Uh, uh, Not only that, but we're also told his credentials. Well, he tells us himself, doesn't he, in verse 20, uh, when Jesus refers to uh, some of the commandments, uh, he says, actually, all of these I've kept. Um, There in verse 20, all of these uh, I have kept. This guy had everything going for him. He was young, he was rich, he was confident. He would come back to Jesus and say, yep, I've kept those. He was conscientious, Uh, he was a moral sort of guy, he 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 had a bit bit of religion in his life. Um, And Luke tells us as well in his gospel that this guy was also a ruler. So put all that together, he's young, he's rich, he's, he's, he's got a good job and a good position. Um, uh, he, he, was the, he had a good job, a good life. No doubt uh, he had clear convictions as a young man. 
the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry, right? Uh, I bet he was probably ruggedly handsome as well, just to top it off. I don't know that, but it's the kind of picture you get, don't you, of this guy. He, he was young, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he had it all going for him. I don't know if you ever met someone like that. Perhaps you've seen them on TV. Who just had everything. Or maybe that's the kind of person you aspire to be or wish you could be or could have been. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because for all the things that this guy had going for him, there was something missing. And he knew it. He came to Jesus and asked a very important question. You notice this man came with a question, verse 16. He said, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And he is relentless in this pursuit. You notice that um, Jesus gives him an answer. He points uh, to even more commandments um, to do, more things to do. Uh, But he says in verse 20, all these I've done, I've kept all those. What do I still lack? He knows there's something missing for all of the things that he had in life. He knows that there's something, there must be something more to life than this. Even as a young man, that's interesting, isn't it? You don't have to be old to perceive uh, that there's more to life than just stuff. More to life than just position and power and, uh, and, and career success and job and income and status. It's interesting that Mark tells us in his gospel that this man ran to Jesus. Was he desperate? Was he excited? Whatever it was, there's something serious, there's something earnest about this guy who runs to Jesus and asks. It's almost like he's begging, what, you know, I've, I'm, even at this young point, I, I know there's something more. And he comes to Jesus with a sense of, I think, some sort of desperation, earnestness, seriousness, pursuing this question, not giving up with just a simple answer. What must I do? Power, position, prosperity, potential. He knew there was something missing. He knew it and Jesus knew it. He calls it, in verse 16, eternal life. Jesus called it simply life, in verse 17. Or to be perfect. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said. And the word means complete, whole. You want to to, to feel like... This really is life, to be perfect, whole, or to have treasure in heaven, Jesus says in in verse 21, or to enter, receive the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The disciples talk about this in terms of being saved. I think it's all talking about the same thing. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 9, He comes to Jesus with this earnestness and Jesus, it says, looked at him and loved him. He knew something was missing. He knew that something was incomplete about his life. And Jesus looked at him and he knew it too. He loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. He knew it and Jesus knew it. Which is really a shocking thing to say, isn't it? To this man who had everything. He knew his Bible. 
he'd always done the right thing. And if there was any doubt in our mind that that wasn't the case, he had the Old Testament stamp of God's approval on his life, the Old Testament stamp of God's blessing, because he was rich. You see, that's how it worked in the Old Testament, wasn't it? If you obey my commandments, you will live in the land and you will prosper. All of your sheep will have babies and your, your cows will have calves and your wife will have children and the trees will grow lots of fruit and you'll be blessed in the land. And that will be a sign, a symbol, showing that you have God's blessing and God's approval on your life. And here was this man, he had it all. But he didn't. And he comes to Jesus looking for it. And Jesus says, you're right, there's something missing. You've got all of that. And the disciples were amazed at this, weren't they? Because according to their worldview, according to their understanding of the way that life works, this man, if there ever was a man who was a potential candidate for the kingdom of God, a man who was in with God, this man had all the bells and trappings to prove it. The disciples were amazed. They were greatly astonished, we read in verse 25. If any man can be saved, surely it's this man. Here is a man who could look at the law of God and say, I did it. Like the Apostle Paul, you remember that? Born a Hebrew of the Hebrews, raised in all of that, obeying the commands all the way up through childhood and adolescence and into adulthood and zealous for the laws of God. I've done it. Have you murdered anyone? Nope. Have you committed adultery? Nope. Let's go through all the commandments. And, and Jesus, uh, he, he, he lists a few here, doesn't he? And then uh, he, he sort of gives the one that sums them all up. Have you, have you loved your neighbour as yourself? Yes, I've done it. Checklist done. He was rich. He was powerful. He was religious. Was he serious? Had he really... Did he really think that he'd kept God's laws? Perhaps he hadn't heard Jesus' earlier sermon, chapter 5 of Matthew. But I think he was serious. I've done it. What more? What does he say, verse 3? What do I still lack? Well, Jesus says you do lack something, don't you? If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Sell your possessions, give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's interesting, the idea of treasure in heaven is often linked in the New Testament to giving to the poor. Is it that simple? Is it just that I've got a dispense of my goods and, and then I'll get treasure in heaven? It's just the start, isn't it? And then come, follow me, I'll show you a whole new way of life. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, truly, it is hard. It's difficult for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, in case you missed it in the last verse, in verse 23, he tells them again in verse 24, Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I went past some camels on the way here. Lumpy, bumpy, big creatures, aren't they? And isn't it absurd? That's the point here, isn't it? It's absurd to think that one of those could go through the eye of a needle. Jesus tells us the point of his illustration. He says it's impossible in verse 26. It's impossible. It's not just hard. It's literally impossible. It's not a matter of trying harder or setting new goals or sort of revamping, you know, improving yourself somewhere. No, it's, it's actually impossible. A good life, a moral life, a religious life, it's not enough. And we see that in the story, don't we? It's, it's a sad ending. This man goes away. He went away sad. It's a Shakespeare tragedy, but it's not Shakespeare. I remember going to see, um, oh, well, they're all, all the Shakespeare ones are like this, aren't they? Um, Hamlet. And, you know, I, I, I didn't do very much literature at school, uh, English and so on. And so I, I, this was all new to me. And I went to see the film. And, of course, everyone dies in the end. And there's this triumphant music play. I'm going, what is wrong? Uh, you know, all the main characters are now dead. <laughs> but that's how it is, isn't it? It's a tragedy. That's the whole point. And that's the point of this story, isn't it? Jesus has given us the teaching about, uh, you know, it's the poor in spirit who will have the kingdom of, of heaven. He's given us the teaching about all of this, but now we meet the person. I remember um, uh, writing essays at Bible college um, and looking up heretics, essentially, people who deny the teachings of the Bible and writing, you know, writing essays against their arguments and so on. And then I met some. And they're really nice people, really winsome, really pastoral. But they were wrong. And here, you see, that's it, isn't it? We've, we've heard the teaching of Jesus about, about the dangers of money. And, uh, he, and now we meet the person. And he's a real person. He's, he, he's someone who's got a life, some sort of life. Some sort of real struggle as well, some sort of desperation as he's looking for real answers. Uh, what is life all about? And he goes to this, he must have heard of Jesus, this religious guru. I'll go to him, maybe he can answer my question. How do I get eternal life, real life? I've got everything else. I've chased after all the dreams and all the things that people and culture and society are telling me to chase. And I'm still winding up empty. Jesus says it's impossible. You see, faith, saving faith, is not just about trusting Jesus as your saviour. Did you know that? So often talk about it in church, isn't it? We say, well, to be a Christian is to trust Jesus as your saviour. I want to suggest to you tonight that it's more than that. 
You notice the language that Jesus uses to address this rich man? He says that what you need is treasure in heaven. And in order to get the treasure in heaven, you've got to let go of all that you're holding to here in order to take hold of that. You've got to treasure something more. You see, what happens, you know, when you're holding onto that little, that little rope that's keeping you safe in the storm and in the waves and all that kind of stuff, and some helicopter's coming down and giving you a real rescue, uh, you know, a real rope to hold onto, you've got to let go of the little one, haven't you? If you're going to be really saved, and here we are in this world and we're battered and beaten by all these storms and we think, money, that's the answer, isn't it? Because that will bring me security and, 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 and safety and a network and I can, you know... But actually, a real saviour has come, hasn't he? Jesus, and he's offering us a real rope, something eternal, something that will last, something that will save us forever. And in order to grab onto his rope, we've got to let go. And Jesus is calling this man to do that. He's saying, sell, get rid of it. Force yourself to let go in order to grasp onto me. But he couldn't do it. Do you know Why? Because it's impossible. It's impossible. It's impo it was impossible for this man, but actually it's impossible for all of us, isn't it? Because we can decide from our will what we do, but you cannot choose what you love. You cannot change your affections from loving one thing to loving another. You can't do it. All, all of our effort, all of our trying to release ourselves from one thing and to love something, we can't do it. If it's ugly to you, it's ugly. But Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There's a detachment that's necessary. There's a letting go of a lesser treasure to grasp the greater. There's a change of heart. There's a new, new affections, new desires, new loves. Jesus says, where does greed come from? It comes from a heart, doesn't it? That's why, we, that's why we, the Bible talks about us needing a, a heart transplant, a new heart, taking out a heart of stone that loves all these lesser things and putting in a heart of flesh that loves God and loves its neighbour, that loves God above everything. That's why the Bible talks about us being born again. Because we, it's not just, you know, um, there's that joke, isn't it, about, uh, about the um, interior decorator. How many interior decorators does it take to change a light bulb? Have you heard that one? You know, well, it's, not just, it's not just the light bulb that needs changing, it's the whole room. And that's the thing, isn't it? With, with us, we, we try to, to change the light bulb in our life. But actually, it's, a, it's, it's, it's total renovation, isn't it? It's a demolition, starting again. God's got to come in and breathe new life into us, implant a new heart into us, change us from the inside out. It's impossible. And you can't do it. I can't do it. Perhaps you've been trying. Faith is not just trusting Jesus as your saviour. Saving faith is trusting Jesus as your treasure. Loving him above everything else. Yes, trusting him as your saviour, of course, but trusting him as your lord, trusting him as your king, as your master. Who then can enter the kingdom of God? 
not this man. Verse 13 and 14. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs. Now notice it doesn't say to these. What does it say? Have a look. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Those who are like children. Now we've got three children and uh, all of them uh, as children, little children, all they did was take, take, take. Can you relate to that as parents? That's, that's what a child does, isn't it? They're, they're, they are fully dependent. A newborn baby. They don't earn their keep. They spew, they poo, and they cry. They don't contribute anything. They don't bring anything in their hands to offer us as they come out into this world. They are literally dependent. Their hands are empty. All they do is receive. And they are trusting, aren't they? They'll jump to you from the side of the pool. They'll slide down the slippery slide, head first, assuming you'll catch them. I don't think Jesus is saying such as these innocent children, these pure children. (laughs) Well, my children certainly weren't. Or these gullible children, naive children. No, I think he's saying these fully dependent bringing nothing into the world, nothing in their hands, children. These childlike, that's what Jesus said, the the poor in spirit. Um, Go back to 18.4. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, that's what it's all about. It's being childlike. He's not saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. That's a discussion for another day. He's saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to people who are childlike, to such as these. I wonder if Jesus used little children as an illustration because at every other age we are trained to earn our acceptance, aren't we? What do we tell our kids? You do this and you'll get this. You know, behave in the car on this long trip on the holidays and we'll give you, we'll stop at Macca's on the way. Um, you enter school, get your grades and you'll, you know, get the good job. Work hard at school. You get the job, and you've got to work hard to earn your position, don't you? And you've got to um, climb the ladder. So you've got to, everything's about earning and merit and, and, and working our way, isn't it? But children, children are different, aren't they? It's, it's difficult for us adults who are used to earning our acceptance with others simply to come empty-handed. But that's the way. You see, this guy came to Jesus saying, what should I do? But the kingdom of heaven, have a look at um, verse 29, is inherited. It's not earned. You don't do something to earn an inheritance. You must be born into an inheritance. And you can't do that and I can't do that. We must be born again. You see, justice 
is getting what we deserve, isn't it? We all know about justice. We love justice, but we hate justice. Mercy is getting what we... Well, it's being let off the hook, isn't it? It's not getting the punishment that we deserve. But grace is being shown kindness when we deserve punishment. Justice is you stole the car, you go to prison. Mercy is you stole the car, but we'll let you off the hook this time. Grace is you stole the car, but let me give you a Ferrari instead of the Nissan. That's grace. It's scandalous, but Christianity, like all, unlike, I should say, unlike all other religions, is about grace. We are not saved on the basis of what we do, but on the, on the basis of what Jesus has already done for us. We're not saved on the basis of how good we have been, but on the basis of how good Jesus was. And so we don't have to live a good life to earn God's acceptance. We live a good life as evidence that we have been accepted. Heaven is not a place for good people. Heaven is a place for little people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What if life is not about earning and striving and meriting, but about receiving and rejoicing. On our holidays, we drove through Lismore, and we thought we would just pass through, but we spent quite a bit of time driving around the blocks and looking at houses, well, what used to be houses, with floodlines up at the windows of the second story, and bricks knocked out and phone numbers written on them saying, take me away. It was, it was quite in, impacting to see the devastation. And I wonder, how does a community like that recover? How do you process that scale of loss? And what a mercy on Lismore. What a blessing that flood was on Lismore because it screams that treasure in this world is only temporary. What a danger to walk into a suburb, to drive around a suburb where all the houses are new and beautiful and clean and crisp And to realise that people there might be being deceived. That treasure on earth might last. Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust, and we could say fires and floods destroy, but save up treasure, store up treasure in heaven where it's, it's eternal, it's imperishable can't be corrupted. I wonder where you are putting your investment in life. Here's a little test. Do you ever, ever have a day that runs something like this? I'm stealing this from Don Carson because it's so good. You get up in the morning and it's drizzly and hot and the air conditioner is broken. 
You reach for a clean, fresh pair of socks and you can't find two that match. You stub your toe on the nail that's sticking out of the wall that you knew you should have fixed about three years ago and you'll cut yourself while you're shaving. You stumble down to breakfast and that day your wife is going out for a special meeting with her friends and has not done anything. You go out to the car, you put your key in ignition and it will not start. You knew that you should have had the battery checked and it's as dead as a dodo. You get to work late and people are saying rude things about you. Your boss says, have you finished that report yet? You're staying late tonight if you haven't. And the whole day unfolds in one endless set of mini irritants. Eventually you return home and your wife has cooked this disgusting stew that your children like that you detest. And you cannot be civil with her and she not, cannot be civil with, with you. The kids that night are really not behaving uh, particularly well. Your wife wants you to do jobs and you want to watch football. Finally, it's time for bed and at the end of this long day, your prayer runs something like this. Dear God, this has been a rotten day. I'm not very proud of myself. I'm frankly ashamed, but I really don't have anything to say. I'm sorry I haven't done better. Forgive my sins. Bless everyone in the world. Your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. But then a few days later, you wake up to find that the air is refreshingly cool. The sun is shining, the windows are open, the fresh air is wafting through the screen and you hear the, uh, the, the birds singing, you can smell something delightful, bacon, I can't believe it. I wonder what the celebration is. You get up and reach for clean socks and feel full of energy. You're whistling as you wash in the bathroom and then you have a wonderful quiet time with your spouse. You eat a hearty breakfast and then go out to the car, put the key in the ignition and vroom. The car starts right up and takes off. You get to work early. Everybody commends you on your industriousness and intelligence in the way that you've discharged your duties. Your boss says, wonderful day uh, to, to see you. Did I tell you that you're going to get a raise? You did such a great job on that contract. Then you arrive home and there is a joyous family dinner. The kids are behaving. Uh, you have an intimate conversation with your wife while the two of you clean up the kitchen. And finally, at the end of the day, you get down to pray and your prayer goes something like this. Eternal and matchless God, we bow in your gracious presence with broken and, uh, brokenness and gratitude. We bless you that in your infinite mercies and great grace you have poured favour on us. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies and on and on you go in flowery theological language. You thank God for all the things in that day and then you pray for the missionaries and their children and their first cousins twice removed. Then you start praying for everyone that you can think of in your church and you meditate on the names of Christ as you think about the scriptures. An hour goes by and you go to bed and instantly fall asleep. Now here's the question. On which one of those days do you understand grace? You see, the truth is that your relationship with God does not depend on what type of day you have. Our relationship with God depends on what he did 2,000 years ago on a cross to make us right with him, to reconcile enemies, to win us eternal life. That's what makes the difference. You see, this rich young ruler he thought he had to do something. He thought he had to achieve something. He thought he had to experience a kind of... What, what is it, you see? Do you get grace?
because this man didn't. He couldn't see. His eyes weren't open. He couldn't do it. It was impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. And you see, I want to say that the only way we can understand what grace really is and operate in every day, the good days and the bad days, uh, and, and in, in understanding, in trusting God and being a part of his kingdom is by a miracle, isn't it? So that every day, whatever day you're going through, you can, you can live uh, understanding grace, understanding you're accepted with God based on what Jesus has done. And so you're free. You're free. You don't have to hold on to all the things in this life that you're accumulating and storing up in your garage. It's already full anyway. And you can be free to be generous. And you can live a completely radical life, can't you? Where, I mean, it does, it's absurd the way that Jesus lived, isn't it? Because he wasn't living for this world. He was living for what? Look at this end of this. He says, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left, everyone. You see, it's not just about this man. Some people say this parable is just about this man. He had a problem with wealth, so Jesus told him to sell everything. No, this is a universal application, isn't it? Everyone, everyone who has left houses of brothers or sisters and fathers and mothers or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's what we're living for, isn't it? Not stuff here. You've got to choose, isn't it? You can't love money and God. But only God can free us to love him. Will you pray with me? Because I think we need God to change us, don't we, to do that work for us. So let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much uh, for this yeah, this account in your Gospels that tells us of this rich young ruler. We thank you, Lord, that it's, it, for this warning. We look at this man and we, we see our own lives and our own hearts and our greed and our love of money and stuff and things. And Lord God, we, we pray, please, that you would change us from the inside out uh, would you birth us again by your holy spirit would you give us new desires and affection and love for you um, would you help us to live for that eternal kingdom and so release us god from the things of this world uh, the love of stuff lord would you help us lord to be generous as as people as a church would you help us lord to um to be able to uh, live with the freedom of, uh, of living for you. And so, Lord, please, yeah, would you just um, keep us, Lord, keep us from the love of money. It's such a danger. It's, it's all around us. It's what we hear day in and day out as we hear the advertisements, as we look at stuff in the shops and the magazines and online. Lord, would you free us from the love of things and give us a greater love for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.